Hello, and welcome to the 36th episode of the LI Law Podcast. I am your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law, and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live or work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings Counties. Our guest on this 36th episode is Charles Eric Gordon Esquire, an investigative attorney serving the legal profession and its clients in locating heirs, beneficiaries, shareholders, holders, witnesses, debtors, and other missing people, especially those who have been absent for an extended period of time and or about whom little information is known. Please check out the show notes for a full list of Charles Eric Gordon's credentials and contact information. Please also keep in mind that we will not be providing legal advice to any specific questions. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Zahaba. Okay. Well, Charlie, please tell us about yourself. How did you become an investigative attorney? Well, I was always interested in detective work, and I collected telephone books and watched Perry Mason with my dad as a child. After graduating from SUNY Cortland with a bachelor's degree in English, I began working as a debt collector for a major commercial bank and learned to trace the whereabouts of missing debtors, the art of skip tracing. During and after attending Brooklyn Law School, instead of becoming a prosecutor, I had interned with the Queens County District Attorney's Office working with the detective squad because of my background, or instead of joining the police department, I practiced collections law for a few years and in 1983 launched my own practice, concentrating in tracing missing people and related investigative work. As a licensed attorney, New York State exempts me from having to hold private investigator's license as long as the cases I work on have some nexus, some connection to a legal matter, such as locating heirs, beneficiaries, witnesses, or debtors. I can't go and find long-lost loves unless they're being left money, unless there's some sort of legal issue. What happens if the people you find don't want to be found? Well, I always ask if there's an order of protection. And since I deal 99% of the time with attorneys, uh, they wouldn't take or ask me to take on a case that involves an order of protection. But I may work out a deal where I will say I will search for the person but I will not give you their information. If they don't want to be contacted, I will relay a message to them. But that's a very, very small possibility of my taking any case where there's not any legal issue unless it's a humanitarian case. Okay, and what are some tips, Charlie, that you have for our listeners who may be looking for missing persons? Well, if a listener wants to attempt to locate a missing person, a great place to start is always with open source intelligence. That's what we call things that can be found online or public records, things that are open to the public, often for free, such as Google is for free, Facebook, LinkedIn is for free. Public records such as property tax and voter registration information, there may be a slight charge, especially voter registration information. You'll have to fill out a FOIA form, a Freedom of Information Law form, but it is an open record. For genealogy and related quests to find somebody, a paid database such as Ancestry.com may be useful. A paid databases such as Spokeo, uh, S-P-O-K-E-O, may be useful, but much of trying to locate someone or obtain any information about them requires thoughtful, creative analysis. It's not just raw data. It's also useful to speak to family members or former neighbors who may know and share the missing person's whereabouts, or at least pass on a message to them to call you. They may not, and I would always advise 
against giving out information until you know for sure who you're dealing with. But they will hopefully take your information and pass it on. And if there's not a problem, if there's no suspicion, if there's no order of protection, they will relay the message to the person and the person may contact you. You just brought up an, an interesting question, Charlie. What if one of our listeners is contacted by someone who puts himself or herself out as a, uh, whether an investigative attorney or a private investigator? What should that person do, or how can that person verify the credentials and the, uh, the truth of what the uh, private investigator is saying? Well, you can always check for an attorney. Attorneys are licensed by the state of New York. The Office of Court Administration at OCA.gov will uh, be able to tell you if somebody is licensed to uh, practice law, what their status is. The Department of State, the New York Department of State, the Secretary of State's office has a database which you can access online of people that have various licenses, everything from private investigator to locksmith to barbers. I would suggest, though, especially regarding a private investigator and possibly an attorney, too, if you think there's any issue that you're the person they're looking for doesn't want to be found or may not want to be found, I think that the best thing to do would be to take their information, their phone number, their name, their company name, and their then tell them that you will relay the information. And then if the person wants to speak to them, they will. And if not, then they will not. But that might avoid an unpleasant situation later. Okay. And what are some ways in which you can help persons uh, who are looking for missing persons and cannot find them? For example, what are some things in particular that you as an investigative attorney can do that other people cannot do? And, And why counsel is so important? Well, as an attorney, I'm an officer of the court. I work with other attorneys who, if a litigation is going on, if there's a lawsuit, they have subpoena power and they can subpoena records. Other than that, I have access and licensed private investigators as well. And certain legitimate businesses, their uh, investigations units or their legal departments have access to proprietary databases that civilians, that normal people in this who do not do this type of work and who are not vetted do not have. It's an amazing amount of information out there. Some of that may seem scary, but the people that are vetted to use this information are not going to, they should not be using this to hurt anybody. Right. Well, well, I know that I have used investigators in the past when I have been searching in my trust and estates work and estate administration, we're looking for family members who are missing, maybe deceased, someone who is estranged from the family, and we need to report to the court all of the efforts we have made, our diligent search to find all possible distributees or beneficiaries who are in a will. And so the importance of using a reputable and a uh, competent and knowledgeable investigative attorneys very important. Absolutely, and where professional genealogists may be able to ascertain the relationships and 
may be able to do some open source research they're not going to have access to unless they're also attorneys or licensed private investigators they're not going to have access to any of these proprietary databases the other thing too is attorneys and investigators think in a different way their minds are trained to look at a picture it's how you analyze it it's not just the raw data that comes in you have to look at it you have to sort it you have to know what's useful and then it has to would you dealing with a probate or in a state administration and surrogates court it has to be packaged neatly together so that the the probate clerk or the administration clerk in the surrogates court or the surrogate judge hey excuse me here herself are willing to accept it that way that a diligent and exhaustive effort has been made to locate this person Okay, and now we're going to segue into our segment called What is on Your Desk? A recent client matter, which you can use to illustrate a teachable legal moment to the listeners. So, Charlie, what's on your desk? My desk is a mess, but beyond the personal artifacts that are on my desk and countless coffee mugs, on my desk I have several files. One that just started this morning again, I thought I had put it to sleep for a little while, not permanently, is a missing person case wherein I was retained by an attorney to find a client. A lot of times clients don't keep in touch with their attorneys, especially in medical malpractice actions, personal injury actions. Things don't happen for a year, two, three years, and they forget to tell them that they've moved. In this specific case, we have a homeless person who hasn't kept in contact, and now it appears after finding family members, the homeless person may be deceased. If the homeless person is deceased, then uh, in this case, the brother would take over as administrator of the estate. What I have to do, though, is we're going to have to show that a diligent effort was made to find the homeless person, the client. And I've, of course, I've done all the database searches. I've spoken to homeless shelters. I've got an inquiry, a Freedom of Information inquiry into the New York City Department of Homeless Services. I'm in contact, again, today I was in contact with the Chief Medical Examiner's Office, and we're doing everything we can to try to locate him, or unfortunately, uh, this person may be deceased. Uh, if the person is deceased, then of course we're going to have to show to the court satisfaction that either he is deceased or that he will not, you know, we cannot account for the person after diligent and exhaustive efforts. The other cases I have on my desk are one that I just finished, as a matter of fact, but I haven't filed away yet, is I was assisting a client in the former Soviet Union in one of the Baltic republics to find out when and where an individual who was an heir to an estate in that Baltic nation had died. Others, including a Russian firm back in the Soviet days, had tried and failed to locate this immigrant. All we knew was his parents' names, the year of his birth, the year of his death, which was 1963. Through extensive research, I was able to ascertain that this person had died in Brooklyn in June of 1963 under an Americanized surname of his Baltic name, which he had been using since about 1925. Another recently solved case that I had from last week involved locating a co-owner of a co-op in Brooklyn that was sold to my co-counsel's client nearly 20 years ago, and now there's a title issue with clearing title. Uh, I have two open cases at this moment 
in which I'm gathering evidence for court that two individuals did not reside in their apartments a few years ago, which would have enabled them, had they resided in those apartments, to assert secession rights to these rent-stabilized apartments. That's a valuable commodity. Uh, these are cases that an amateur detective could not have cleared up with the available information. These, I need the proprietary databases. We've issued subpoenas. Uh, these are more complex cases. And that's a great segue into our segment only on Long Island. A recent development you see in your practice in Queens, Nassau, Suffolk, or Kings Counties. What developments do you see, Charlie? Uh, there was a development going back to June of last year, Zahava, which is not the best law that was passed or that the governor signed. I'm talking about the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Law that went into effect in June of last year. As a result of that, I'm handling fewer rent regulation fraud cases, but this new state law makes it less worthwhile for property owners to investigate tenants violating the rent regulations, which works to penalize the thousands of small middle-class and working-class landlords, especially in Brooklyn and Queens, and also in the Bronx and some in Nassau County. What this does basically is people could illegally sublet their apartments, be making a profit on it, be living in Florida. I had one case a couple of years ago where somebody had been dead for five years, but his checking account was still open and somebody was forging his signature. I've had cases like this where somebody's lived in an apartment, moves out, and all of a sudden a parade of family members, some a lot less responsible physically and socially than the original tenant are in there. You've had houses of prostitution run out of their rooming houses. Uh, now there's no real incentive for the landlords to try to clean this up. Charlie, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? Yes, I miss, uh, I miss talking about one of the tools that I use that uh, I've been stockpiling before. I mentioned that I collected phone books as a child and now as an adult. I still use phone books and I've cleared many cases I'm in front of me. The listeners can't see it, but I have a 1962-1963 Brooklyn White Page Directory. This helped me clear up the case of the gentleman from the Baltic Republic who had passed away using another name. Using this phone book, I was able to find out when his last listing was, and sure enough, it was in 1962. It appears he went into a nursing home and died a year later. But old telephone books, especially with estate cases or when you're trying to find somebody to clear a real estate title, can be very useful. You've got to think outside of the box and use the strangest tools when you're doing investigative work. And for our younger listeners who may not be familiar with phone books, they're actually used to be a way to find people through physical books before Google and, and internet searches, and they were invaluable at that time. They certainly were, and that was before the only phone books now became those molding pieces of withered yellow pages <laughs> that are lying in your driveway. Right, those relics. And is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? Yes, I'm old enough that I could probably retire if I wanted to, but this line of work is very, very interesting. I'm always interested in speaking to people who have a problem, either them or their attorneys. And uh, if you have an issue, give me a call or an email at sleuth 
S-L-E-U-T-H-3-2 at AOL.com, and I will answer you. Yeah, and all of Charlie's contact information is in the show notes, so please take a look at that. And that's it for our 36th episode today. Thank you, Charles Eric Gordon, for coming on our podcast today. Thank, thank you for having me, Zahava. And to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are there, please rate us with a review that might start. I just heard on the LA Law podcast that as of April 1st, 2020, Long Island residents will receive the 2020 census and are encouraged to respond. Suffolk and Nassau counties are ranked fourth and fifth, respectively, as the hardest to count counties in New York State due to the high proportion of groups which are typically undercounted, namely minorities, children under five, and immigrants. Insufficient or incomplete responses will mean the loss of federal funds for Long Island residents, including Medicaid and Medicare coverage, highway planning and construction, school grants, and loss of congressional seats. So please respond to the census and be counted. The LA Law Podcast lets you know what's going on on Long Island and is your podcast for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.